0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Daniel Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with Jason Stacy, author of Spoon River America, published in 2021 by the University of Illinois Press. Welcome, Jason.
1: Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: So thanks for coming on the show. I'm eager to dive into your book. I thought it was a terrific read. I learned so much from reading it. But before we do that, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, I'm a uh, professor of history at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Um, I'm an unusual historian because uh, I'm interested in literature. Uh, There's a lot of historians who do print culture, um, but not a lot of historians of print culture that do literature. I think that's probably because both my parents were English teachers, and I thought I was rebelling as a young man going into history, Uh, but we always end up becoming like our parents. And so here I am teaching history by day, and researching and writing about literature at night. Great. Well, this is a terrific
0: book about a terrific book. It's funny you said, you know, print history and the combination of literature and history, because that's what your book is. So like I said, Spoon River America is a great book about Spoon River Anthology, which is a great book by Edgar Lee Masters, the Illinois poet born in 1868, died in 1950, now Spoon River Anthology was published in 1915 and part of your book is about the reception and you raised the question that a lot of people raised which is what was Spoon River Anthology? Like what is this thing? So can you
1: begin by telling our listeners like just what Spoon River Anthology is? Sure. It's an unusual book of poetry uh, and it caused a big stir when it was published in 1915. Uh, the premise is that all of the poems... Um, are individuals in a graveyard in a fictional little Illinois town called Spoon River. And all of the poems are these dead people speaking from the grave. And so we call them epitaphs. And uh, they say all sorts of things about their lives, about each other. Some of the things they say are funny. Some of them are very tragic. But most people experience Spoon River anthology. Um, maybe when they're taking college, they'll read five or six poems as part of Midwestern modernism in, early, in the early 20th century. But Masters intended it to be a whole. And in fact, early uh, in its publication, History, many critics thought it was actually a novel. Many of these uh, characters talk about each other. Uh, there are some main characters whose lives touch the lives of many other people in Spoon River. And so for your listeners out there who have maybe only read a few poems in college, uh, I would really recommend that they go out and get the whole book. It's published by a number of publishers. Uh, it's not hard to find. And it really is a very, very uh, wonderful book to not only read cover to cover, but to also drop in and read some of these occasional short poems by dead small town people in the early 20th century.
0: That's a great description. And of course, just to add, being dead, you have the freedom to say whatever you want.
1: That's right. And that's what really made it uh, compelling and oftentimes a little titillating for the audience uh, in 1915, and I think still relatively titillating for readers today. Uh, dead people can share some very uh, interesting secrets, and uh, Masters certainly uh, reveals some uh, interesting secrets by these uh, fictional dead people.
0: Can, can you read one of your favorites or one or two of your favorite ones?
1: Yeah, I'll read a couple just to give you some of the scope. Um, Sometimes Master's uh, little epitaphs are very funny. Now, every one of the epitaphs, every one of the poems, is titled with the name of the dead person. So they don't have any titles that need to be interpreted. Every title is a name. And oftentimes, entire families that are buried together um, are listed in the book next to each other. So I'm going to read Frank Drummer. Uh, He's uh, right next to Hare Drummer, uh, one of his relatives, but I'm not going to read Hare's poem. But here's what Frank Drummer has to say from the grave. Out of a cell, into this darkened space. The end, at 25. My tongue could not speak what stirred within me, and the village thought me a fool. Yet at the start there was a clear vision a high and urgent purpose in my soul, which drove me on trying to memorize the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's it. An absurd, humorous, desperately sad statement, last statement by this man in the graveyard who died at 25, starting in almost a cosmic way, about starting out as a cell and ending up in a darkened space, and revealing to the passerby in the graveyard that his one desire was to memorize the Encyclopedia Britannica, but he lived in the town where everybody thought he was a fool because he could not articulate
0: himself. Right. How about another one?
1: Um, some of them, I think, are uh, darker and a little more complicated. Uh, This is a poem. This is an epitaph by a man named Shaq Dye. And Shaq Dye is the um, sole African-American in Spoon River, at least in the graveyard. And he's the town blacksmith. And here's what he says to the passerby. The white men played all sorts of jokes on me. They took big fish off my hook and put a little one on while I was away. Getting a stringer and made me believe I had seen a right the fish I had caught. When Burr Robin Circus came to town, they got the ringmaster to let a tame leopard into the ring and made me believe I was whipping a wild beast like Samson when I, for an offer of $50, dragged him out to his cage. One time, I entered my blacksmith shop and shook as I saw some horseshoes crawling across the floor as if alive. Walter Simmons had put a magnet under a barrel of water. Yet every one of you, you white men, was fooled about fish and about leopards too. And you didn't know any more than the horseshoes did what moved you about Spoon River. And so, you know, here we have some social commentary um, in a very, very subjective and personal way. Um, Shaq die pointing out that all of those who mocked them were themselves subject to the manipulation uh, by those higher on the social hierarchy in the
0: town. Yeah. And there's so many poems and there's so many epitaphs in the collection where, where it's, it's people reacting to how they were judged by, their, by the the you know the other members of Spoon River.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: So let's um, – I want to read something about the poems from your book that I found interesting and I want to get your reaction to it. So this is from a chapter in which you talk about the epitaphs as works of modernism. And you mentioned before, you have this modernistic text. Here's what you say from Spoon River America. Quote – Masters' epitaphs exhibited situations of great human moral import without any clear moral framework. Since Masters' dead speak authoritatively about the ultimate destination of the living, their spasmodic, obscure, fragmentary, and failed lives left the reader with a deeply ambivalent sense of any underlying cosmic order. Close quote. Can you talk about that? spasmodic, obscure, fragmentary, and failed lives without any sense of a cosmic order?
1: Yeah, sure. First of all, regarding that great string of words, spasmodic, obscure, fragmentary, and failed lives, I'd love to claim credit for it, but I'm quoting Virginia Woolf. And Virginia Woolf was in fact writing in the 1920s, and what she was criticizing was Edwardian literature that sought to tie a nice bow on narrative structure and to make fiction function like um, moral lessons or uh, appeals to social reform. Um, I guess a good example um, might be Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, a great book, but clearly a book that has a moral thrust. Um, What masters managed to do, and, and and one could argue he didn't even quite know he was doing it, and we can talk about that later, Dan, is that with these poems, because he created a collection of statements that are radically subjective, each one of these dead people have their own perspective on their lives and life in general. But because they speak from the dead, They have a certain authority that we don't have in life. And we often assume, whether it be nothing or something, that after death we'll have some answers. But because from the dead these individuals speak with such radical subjectivity, it leaves us with a sense that the cosmos itself is radically subjective, and that in a way, Uh, This life, in all of its subjectivity, is what's true. And so this was very appealing to modernist authors, um, those in Virginia Woolf's ilk. Uh, Ezra Pound, for example, Amy Lowell, H.D., uh, Harriet Monroe, Poetry Magazine. All of them sought a new kind of verse, that overcame some of the um, structural elements of traditional 19th century or Edwardian early 20th century poetry, and also a poetry that spoke intensely to the subjectivity of life. In fact, modernism in its origins in Ezra Pound was called imagism, and the idea was to capture a moment, to observe and with words, capture and relate it down even to the level of feeling to a reader. And for many uh, of the literati during this period, uh, masters in even the structure of this book had managed to capture that ideal of, well, what uh, Virginia Woolf called the spasmodic, obscure, and fragmentary reality of not only life, but the cosmos itself.
0: Yeah, and that's that that's terrific because if you had read them just a few at once, like before you said it's it's designed to be read as a whole. So if the only if you only knew a few epitaphs, you would have a whole different sense of what the whole product is about. Like if you only read Lucinda Matlock, say, you would okay, there, you know, there there's one source of truth. Um, but it's funny what you just said about how you know, you think of something like, I would even further back, uh, further back than the Edwardians, you think of like Dante, where the, you know, the presumption is, well, when you die, at least you'll get some answers. You'll find out what it's all about. But here in Spoon River, in the epitaphs, there's, there's still gossip. There's still uncertainty. There's still hurt feelings. There's still insecurities. I mean, they're only, they only seem a hair away from, from the living.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. And so, you know, not only life is all there is, but that um, one's experience in one's life has certain cosmic ramifications. But they are not universal. They don't necessarily provide answers. Um, the, the moment is all there is, and it's true.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, well let's so that's Spoon River Anthology. So let's move into your book and talk more about Spoon River America. So I think your book is a fascinating work of book history. You talk about the creation, the reception of Spoon River Anthology. And I love how you talk about, and this is kind of like the big, big gist of your book, how it how it kind of reflects and also like interrogates these myths that have grown up about small-town America. You know, I, my joke is if we had the rights, we would listen to Small Town by John Cougar Mellencamp and, because it's funny because all those myths are there too. I, I can't hear that song again now the same way after hear, reading your book. So let's start with this. What is or what are some of the myths of the American small town?
1: Uh, well, it, the, the trajectory of my book is that the myth changed between the 19th and the 20th century. It changed geographically. And it, um, also changed meaningfully, uh, in short, in the 19th century, I argued that the, um, New England village was the representative municipality for what, uh, was essential in the United States. And I go through in a whole chapter, the origins of this and that, that, um, that myth of the of the New England village in the 19th century was a very positive one. And it was also a very nostalgic one. And as typical with nostalgia, it depended upon a um, contemporary foil that inspired the nostalgia. And that was the growing industrial city during the 19th century. So, for example, I analyze uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's um, Uh, Bicentennial celebration of the founding of Concord, Massachusetts, and I note that uh, Concord, Massachusetts at that time was only a train's ride um, from Lowell, Massachusetts, which was a um, growing industrial center for textile production uh, and also wasn't so far from Boston itself also growing during this period. So that while there was nostalgia for the New England village, there was this ambivalence towards this growing industrial centers. I argue that in the 20th century, uh, it shifted to the Midwest. And there are a number of historical reasons uh, for this. But that the the meaningful change that happened is whereas in the 19th century, the New England village was a place of nostalgia and preserved uh, American essence, and the city was something to be ambivalent about. In the 20th century, the Midwestern small town came to be generally regarded as the essentially American municipality. Now, it's important to remember that this is a myth, and myths leave all sorts of people out. And to a certain extent, I've, I've argued in, in public talks that this ninth, this 20th century myth of the Midwestern small town is a kind of um, literary or mythological sundown town. African-Americans were largely uh, invisible from this myth. Uh, and there was a lot of diversity in um, many American small towns, but the myth itself was a particularly white Um, farming class or small middle class, uh, petite bourgeoisie um, ideal. And that this small town, uh, this Midwestern small town as an ideal contained within it both nostalgia, it's an ideal place, things were better in the past, but also ambivalence. That myth is fraudulent and that underneath the Midwestern small town, there's all sorts of vice and avarice and greed and gossiping and that this creates a dynamic about this ideal place where on the one hand it looks on the surface like an ideal place everybody knows each other everybody's happy everybody is satisfied but underneath it there is there are secrets and these secrets are representative of the darker elements of humanity. And I think I think from Masters, uh, the two po- Masters poems that I read, especially Shack Dye, you get a sense of how Masters was part of that process of reformulating that newer American myth of a small town in the 20th century located in the Midwest. And... Um, and I argued it has valence throughout much of the 20th century. In fact, I argue it really until the early 21st century. Uh, It has uh, continued resonance.
0: yeah and I was and I found myself Writing in the margins of your book as I was reading things like Green Acres You know uh, Mayberry and then I Found myself writing things like you know Blue Velvet In Pleasantville which you talk about at the end which We'll get to a little later so it was kind of funny you said Valence is that you you Can't watch something like Green Acres now And not think of your book and say well where does This whole like why did everybody understand Supposedly what that show was about Well and I think the cool thing about your book as well there's A history to why people understand what that show is about so let's talk about the you you have the village in new england and the town in the midwest right this is from spoon river america quote while the new england village memorialized timeless stability in the second half of the 19th century the midwestern town became the center of conflict about the future of the country itself edgar lee masters was born into this conflict end quote so can you talk about that about where he was born geographically and, and, and you know philosophically in this conflict
1: Sure. So, uh, Masters is born in central Illinois. Um, he's actually born in Kansas. Uh, but as a baby, he's brought back to, uh, Petersburg, Illinois, where his, uh, father, uh, grew up, uh, in Menard County. And he lives in Petersburg, Illinois, uh, until, uh, he's 11 years old. Um, And Petersburg, Illinois, he recalled as a place of nostalgia. His uh, grandfather, uh, Squire Davis Masters, uh, first bought a farm and was considered one of the pioneers of Menard County. Um, And uh, Masters' uh, family on his father's side um, were Southerners. And he always recalled uh, Petersburg as a kind of idealized southern uh town and what that meant for him was it was um uh, um open-minded free-living embracing of life in all of its various contours um it's a very very fantastical vision of the town he grew up in and at 11 Uh, he moved uh, just about 40 miles to the north to a town called Lewiston, also in southern Illinois. And Lewiston, at the time his father moved there, was largely controlled by um, veterans of the Civil War uh, for the Union side, many of whom had um, formed local clubs uh, representing what they call the Grand Army of the Republic to maintain that kind of veteran status from the war. And um, Masters claimed that his father was against slavery, but he was also against Lincoln's war, as he termed it. And so Masters claimed that his father, who was a lawyer, had a lot of trouble finding work, for a number of years in Lewiston because of his suspected Southern sympathies. And also, Masters believed that um, Lewiston represented a particularly New England kind of religiosity, a Calvinism that he saw as cold and pinched and narrow-minded, which drove him away from any kind of religious practice or belief for the rest of his life. And again, remember, these are a man's memories of a boy's experience. But central Illinois is in Illinois a kind of no man's land between different settlement patterns. Uh, Southern Illinois was settled by folks coming along the Ohio River Valley out of northern Kentucky and southern Indiana. That's the route that Abraham Lincoln's people followed. Uh, Northern Illinois was settled later after the completion of the Erie Canal and was largely settled from people from New England. And if you look at Illinois on the map, unlike a number of American states, Illinois runs from north to south rather than east to west. And if you talk to an Illinoisan, they'll tell you that there are at least two different Illinois. As I did. As as I did. (laughs) And in fact, (laughs) I work at Southern Illinois University, and those who live here uh, emphasize the southern. And so Masters, growing up in central Illinois, uh, in these two different towns, one he remembered in a very positive fashion, another he remembered in a very negative fashion, really become mixed together in Spoon River. And that's one of the ways in which that ambivalence about the small town came naturally to him. Um, Masters politics or his literary sensibilities are not modernist. Uh, In fact, he's a lot older than most modernists. Uh, he's about 20 years older than Ezra Pound. Uh, Spoon River Anthology wasn't published till he was 47. And Master's politics tend to be more populist. He was always a Democrat, but he supported William Jennings Bryan, uh, romanticizing the American farmer, romanticizing the Jeffersonian ideal. And so this book, uh, Spoon River Anthology, represents a lot of the complexity of not only his upbringing, but his memories. But its reception turned it into something else and helped form that myth. And as I argue in the book, it was actually a book review um, in 1921 that helped reformulate uh, Spoon River anthology as part of a movement of authors revolting against the Midwestern small town.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. You're talking about Carl Van Doren, I assume, and his, his essay, right? Revolt from the Village. So let's talk about that. Carl Van Doren, big, big name. His, his name has a lot of weight behind it. He writes this review called Revolt from the Village. And he says that, you know, Masters was a rebel against that kind of small town he created. So he doesn't see any ambivalence. You're talking about which is why we love the book today. There's all these ambivalence. It's hard to pin down Masters. Carl Van Doren says, no, there's no ambivalence. He That Masters is like Sinclair Lewis in Main Street. He's like Sherwood Anderson in Winesburg, Ohio, right? And he says that, um, you know, people like Masters are interested in showing what we would call this dark underbelly of, of the small town. You know, Van Doren says it's a new movement, right? He says these people are like muckrakers. They're laying bare the hypocrisies and the attitudes of small town America. And then you quote Masters as saying, I didn't revolt against my village, The best years of my life were spent back there in Illinois. So did Van Doren have it right or wrong, or was he trying to pin down Masters in a way where Masters was a lot slippier and more complicated?
1: Um, Okay. Well, first of all, it's important to remember that um, uh, Van Doren's uh, extended review published in 1921 in The Nation Um, is published a number of years after Spoon River Anthology. So Spoon River Anthology comes out in 1915. Uh, It's really a bestseller for about two years. And then um, Van Doren puts it back on the map. And his review is published in the immediate aftermath of um, Sinclair Lewis's book Main Street, which is a much angrier book and a much uh, less ambivalent book about – um, the narrow mindedness, um, the pinched, uh, attitudes and the constricting nature of American small towns. Main street was a bestseller, sold 200,000 books in the first half year, if it was published. And so what Van Doren is doing is he is writing a review that gathers together works that he sees as leading up to main street. But a number of readers Uh, likely had Main Street on the mind when reading the review. And so he argues that there's something afoot in the hinterlands going all the way back to 1915. Masters starts the process. It's followed by Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, continued by Floyd Dell's Mooncalf, and then uh, reaches a kind of apotheosis with Sinclair Lewis's Main Street. And, and this is really... He talks about a few other books uh, in this review, but these are the big four that have become part of a mini-canon known as the Revolt from the Village. And so, you know, one of the nice things about writing reception history is it, it doesn't necessarily matter what the author intended because the subject of my interest is how it was received. And so... Van Doren is not only an essential part of the making of the 20th century myth of the Midwestern small town as being representative of the whole, but he is also an essential part of bringing masters into this little canon of authors that supposedly began this trend. So, you know, did Van Doren have it wrong? Um, I'm going to dodge the question by saying Van Doren is the kind of person the kind of critic um, that Masters was always very intimidated by and also very um, aggressive towards. That Masters had a quintessential chip on his shoulder, primarily from his um, really, um, frankly, subpar education. Uh, He only did a year at Knox College, and then it was only at their finishing school before he could get into the undergraduate program. And after that, his father forced him uh, to read law, and he became a lawyer, a very successful lawyer. Remember, in the 19th century, uh, you didn't go to law school. uh, You apprenticed with a lawyer, and then you read for the bar. And so Masters, who always wanted to be a poet, felt he had a kind of subpar education, and he took it out on those who he saw as highbrow critics. And I, you know, though Master says, you know, I never revolted against my town. Best years of my life spent back there in Illinois. Um, I think that's probably true, according to Masters. But what I think is more significant is that Van took Spoon River Anthology and elevated it into a canon that, Claim to be a revolt against the village in a way that Masters would have probably disliked.
0: Yeah. or It seems like there's something in it of, like, you know, Van Doren is attacking my family and criticizing my family, and only I'm allowed to do that. Only family members are allowed to criticize other family members.
1: Yeah, you know, M- Masters has nothing in particular to say about small towns in general. Um, he's really um, the nefarious characters in the graveyard of Spoon River, lie right next to um, really good
0: people. Listen to Matlock. And, And
1: so he later claimed that what he was trying to do was to capture the whole in this particular. And so it was to be a kind of microcosm. And therefore... Um, it couldn't be a critique of small towns unless it was just a re- critique of everything through this one small town, and I think that's where he'd say Van Doren got it wrong.
0: Yeah, you mentioned you know Main Street because Main Street is of course a book you know which is it, even the title is, is just so dripping with sarcasm, I, you know every sentence, and it's such an angry book, and its 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 aims are completely different than Spoon River, so it's kind of funny that that you know he, he saw he saw Masters as kind of lighting the fuse on the Mission Impossible credits to to start this whole thing rolling. So let's talk about, let's go even beyond uh, Spoon River. You know, one of my favorite things about your book is that you apply these assumptions about small town America to, to other works of art. And you have a chapter in which you look at two wildly popular films. You look at The Best Years of Our Lives, directed by William Wyler, and It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra. Now, both of these come out in '46. They have a great deal in common such as?
1: Um, well, um, both of them are different kinds of coming home stories. Um, the best years of our lives is a course of course a story about three veterans from the second world war uh, who returned to Boone city, uh, probably modeled on Cincinnati, Ohio, but not explicitly so and reintegrate themselves into society in different ways. Um, um it's a wonderful life is about a man who never leaves home, but always wants to leave home. And the coming home story there is the slow and ultimately, uh, crisis driven process of him realizing that he's always been home in Bedford Falls. Um, but what I think significant about both of them, um, That's often not discussed is the extent to which they represent a kind of national anxiety about the end of the Second World War, the place for returning veterans, and specifically uh, the ability of the American economy to provide to them homes, that they will be able to own a home, build a family. And after ten years of depression and four years of war, reintegrate them into the ideal of the American household with a male property owner. And so, the characters—if one watches that through that understanding—the characters are all uh, individuals that are tied to home ownership and acquiring home ownership. Fred Derry in the best years of our lives is a working class guy who returns. His wife leaves him. He ends up a soda jerk. He um, runs to a airplane graveyard and he's about to kind of give up on life uh, when a workman is there and throws him out and tells him these planes are going to be used to build houses for returning veterans and offers him a job. Uh, Al Stevens, who's a banker, uh, returning in the best years of our lives, goes back to the bank. He wants to give loans to veterans who don't have any collateral. He has to fight with the president of the bank, and he eventually wins that fight uh, to give these veterans uh, home, loans for homes based on the collateral of their service to their country. Uh, George Bailey, of course, runs the, um, the um, building and loan in town, From his, owned by his father, uh, Peter Bailey, and uh, it's Henry Potter, the evil banker, who wants to take over the building and loan and force everybody to live in slums. And so, um, both of these stories revolve around a town and the uh, the return of an individual to their place in that town through that home ownership. And and I argue this launches um, a myth. Throughout the second half of the 20th century, about the importance of homeownership to community itself. That the true American community is a community where individuals own a little home, have a little piece of grass, and are sur- and surround a retail district, um, a main street. And that this is the carryover from that 19th century Midwestern myth of the small town. And in fact, I argue that the suburban mall of the 1950s, surrounded by suburban housing, is an echo of that myth of Main Street and the ideal community.
0: Yes. And, and that, of course, that myth is so powerful. And part of the the, um, the plot of It's a Wonderful Life revolves around Potter calling that he refers to that all as a, he's a sentimental hogwash. So he, But there is certainly like there is a certain power to that myth, which is why both of
1: those films work so strongly, wouldn't you say? I do. And one thing I'd note, uh, something I, I talk about in the book is that there are also characters that follow through this myth. So Henry Potter, for example, has an analog in Spoon River Anthology in Thomas Rhodes. Both are bankers who are primarily concerned with dollars and cents They see things as sentimental hogwash that are anything but dollars and cents, and they ultimately do great damage to their towns. And this is not an ideal that masters came up with. There'd been anxiety about bankers all the way back through the 19th century. But masters is part of this stream in the way in which these myths flow. And I do a number of tracing of certain characteristics that continue throughout the late 20th century about certain characters that uh, reappear again and again in this
0: myth. Yeah, the you know, you know, uh, George Bailey says to Harry Potter, "Well, you can't foreclose on these people; they have children." And he says, "They're not my children." That's right. <laughs> and uh, that whole myth of you said the banker, right? That you, that you can trace that right up to Mr. Burns and The Simpsons. He's not a banker, but that idea of like the the powerful, rich man who controls the, the strings of the town.
1: That's exactly right. And and notice in "It's a Wonderful Life," they call uh, Potter's housing slums. And, and 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 that I think for readers had an urban connotation. Once again, placing the ideal place to live would be a town where you know people that's got a main street and people have front yards and porches, and this is the ideal. Slums are an aberration.
0: Which is why people still watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas, and it's it's so drenched in nostalgia. It's this, you know it's funny. I just thought of this right now talking to you. It's the same appeal of a Christmas story. Yes. That, that's right. That idea where everybody knows every you know it's it's nostalgia. It exists outside of time, and there was this thing called World War II, but we won. And it, it's all, it's all good now. <laughs> so that's Boone City. That's Bedford Falls. I want to ask you about another fictional place you talk about in your book, which is Main Street, USA, in Disneyland, California, and in Disney World, Florida. So Disneyland opens in 1955. Disney World opens in 1971. Both of these places still, obviously, in operation today, they have guests enter the park on Main Street, USA, which is supposed to be an imitation of Walt Disney's childhood town of Marceline, Missouri. So let's talk about how does that fake street connect to some parts of Spoon River Anthology and the ideas you talk about in the book?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, when you walked into Disneyland in 1955, you walked right onto Main Street, USA. And Main Street USA uh, was, I use a kind of jargony word, simulacrum. Um, it was a simulation of that um, ideal. And in fact, it gave a number of cues to um, park goers that this was uh, the, the ideal American public space. Um, it was a straight thoroughfare. There was no common green It had 19th century or imitations of 19th century buildings. All of these buildings were individual proprietors rather than multiple proprietors. And there was, there was no housing there. It was a retail space. This is a Midwestern place. If you go to a a traditional new England town, it's, it's a much different structure. uh, Those that were founded in the 17th century. And to further that myth, When you walked in in 1955, to the left was Frontierland, and to the right was Tomorrowland. And so the the park-goer literally entered a timeline of this myth of American founding, beginning with the frontier. We have the kind of idealized American space in Main Street, USA, And then to the right, you have Tomorrowland, and this is what the future will bring, further kind of enforcing that myth. Uh, But one thing I bring up in the book about Main Street USA uh, is that, of course, none of the places there were independent proprietors, but all of them were national chains that were inhabiting uh, those storefronts. And so it also created a kind of familiarity from the shopping center for visitors uh, in the 1950s. They knew these brands. They knew Kodak. They knew Coca-Cola. They knew Upjohn Pharmacies. And so you get this sort of um, easy familiarity that does not challenge, that uh, nostalgia depends upon. Um, However, uh, Main Street USA also inspires a kind of rebellion or an ambivalence that you see occur again and again in American small towns, that it was fake, that it wasn't real. And you still occasionally hear this about Disney today, right? Disney is this, but underneath there, they're actually trying to do this. And, and it's really interesting the way you get different turns in the political wheel, but you still get there's there's something fake about Disney. There's something uh, else going on, and I think that's still very much the 20th century uh, relationship with nostalgia. And let me just let me just read a quote very quickly. Um, so this is published in 1958 in the Nation again uh, by uh, Julian uh, Halsey, and he is writing about Disneyland, and he says, "Romance, adventure, fantasy, science are ballyhooed and marketed." Life is bright colored, clean, cute, titivating, safe, mediocre, inoffensive to the lowest common denominator, and somehow poignantly inhuman. An adventure into the heart of darkness where Mr. Disney traffics in pastel trinketed evil for gold and ivory. And so, you know, Disneyland inspires that kind of ambivalence, and I hope you saw in the book, that's the same kind of ambivalence you get from the revolt from the village ideology, that on the surface you see this nostalgic vision, but there are deep secrets hiding underneath.
0: Yeah, it's an application of Van Doren to to this architectural experience meant, meant meant to not be challenging and not be confrontational at all. There's not supposed to be any dark underbelly for the guest as you walk down Main Street and start spending money.
1: That's right. And, and I just want to, I just want to uh, stress that um, I like Disney world. I like Disneyland. I've taken my kids to Disney world. I have no problem with a hundred times I've done it, (laughs) but um, you know, when I hear people criticize uh, Disney, Disney world, Disneyland, they call it fake, et cetera. um, I I hope that they understand that they are uh, reinvigorating the cycles of that mythology in the United States, that that kind of nostalgia and ambivalence form a a dialectic. That's part of our mythological structure.
0: Great point. So Spoon River Anthology has been in print for 100 years right? Over a hundred years. And you talk about why that is and and specifically why it's a favorite among high school teachers and high school students. Now I used to teach high school English and I taught masters. So when I got to that chapter of your book, I found myself nodding along with you as you talked about Spoon River in the classroom. So how do you, you, because you know, what appears on a syllabus or on a high school curriculum is is a function of of fashion of what's in and out, what literary periods. You know, who reads what when? That's a fa- that's a whole other area of of your expertise as a scholar of book history, right? So people go in and out of favor. Masters remains right. What's the appeal for masters in the classroom?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> I think masters um, accomplishes some uh, goals that uh, are contradictory for high school English teachers. Uh, The first is to um, introduce students to great literature. Um, As we still argue about the existence of a canon, we still, I think think that there are things that students should read. We just often disagree about what those are. And so, to a certain extent, we've got something that we want students to read. Go away having read this thing in my class. Um, But also, um, we want them to relate to it. We want them to like it. We want them to maybe feel transformed by it. So that it can't just be castor oil if it's going to work well in a class. Take your medicine, now move along. Uh, We want them to also be uh, excited by what we give to them. And so Masters does a lot of work for an English teacher who wants those two things. Read something I think is good for you and like it, enjoy it, maybe be changed by it. So He fits within that canonical uh, framework in that he's often anthologized. Um, He's representative of modernist literature in that it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't necessarily have an argument. Um, He's really comprehensible. The poems are relatively easy to understand. Uh, T.S. Eliot's hard. He's a great modernist, but The Wasteland is really hard. Uh, Masters is a modernism that is understandable by students. Um, he's a little bit um, exciting because all of his subjects are dead, and all of us are fascinated with what dead people think about what it is to be dead. and And many of them um, are very personal. They uh, are funny. They're tragic. They're silly. They're um, mean. And so there's a kind of gossiping quality. There's a personalism to them that I think students find engaging. And I think finally his poems are reproducible by students so that it's very easy to say to students, okay, now that we have read some of these epitaphs, uh, for example, one teacher I talk about in my book gave randomly his students pieces of paper that had how they met their death. And then they had to write their own epitaph in the style of uh, Edgar Lee Masters. Uh, but just something else that I didn't have in my book, but uh, I'd like to bring up here, more personal, um, why my mother, who taught English for many, many years in a little town, taught Spoon River Anthology. Um, she believed that her students were uh, ex- lived the ambivalence of the small town, that they knew that it was supposed to be, or that they were supposed to think, it was a wonderful, perfect place. And all the bad stuff went on elsewhere, usually in Chicago. But also, she knew that they experienced life like all people, with all sorts of contradictions and tragedy and struggles. And she believed that Spoon River Anthology could say to them, even very long ago, in a little town, people lived real lives too and here's all the diversity of those lives that they could connect to it and maybe um what see where they lived more clearly by reading these um neighbors who um were now dead but lived a similar life so um, uh, you know, I, I think that he does that kind of work uh, for teachers and for students, and I think that's one of the reasons he's been read in classrooms and continues to be read.
0: Yeah, his, his fellow modernist Ezra Pound said, "Literature is news that stays news," and and there's something very newsworthy still about about people like Frank Drummer and and you know all the other people buried there on the hill. So Masters wrote many things, though, as you bring up in your book, besides Spoon River Anthology. He wrote, you know, um, plays and dozens and dozens of poems and works of nonfiction. But as we know from literary history, and as you know in your book, nothing ever matched it. You don't don't rush to Masters' defense. You don't say, well, you know, you're all missing all these other great gems. You say yourself, you know, Spoon River Anthology was it. And you say your exact quote is, he was never able to pull off a second act.
1: Yeah. Talk about that. One critic said, uh, with Spoon River Anthology, Masters arrived and left. Uh, He he, he published, wow, over 30 um, books of poetry, biography, plays, screenplays. Um, All of them were, frankly, uh, failures. Um, He um, based really on the success of Spoon River Anthology, he divorced his wife, Helen, in 1923. Quit his job as a lawyer. Um, he was already over 50 at this time. Moved to New York City to become a full-time poet was his hope. Uh, actually ended up in the Chelsea Hotel, which is seems like where all artists <laughs> go at their low point uh, i think that's where sid vicious and nancy spongen were it was
0: hard to uh, imagine him in his lawyer attire no- knowing that as you point out he used to practice with clarence darrow for a while and then you, you could, it's the cognitive dissonance of imagining him at the chelsea hotel that's right
1: i mean he he um he literally had a kind of midlife crisis with spoon rare anthology but he thought it was his final ascent to being a poet um and you know this points out that I think Masters. This this is a this is a point that his biographer Herbert Russell makes. Uh, Ru- uh, Masters had a lot of trouble telling quality from trash, even in his own writing. And in fact, his book Songs and Satires, that came out a year after Spooner Anthology, went back to his old mode of writing poetry, which rhymed and uh, had a moral and classic allusions and was really uh, quite bad. Um, his probably best-known work other than Spoon River Anthology. was published in the 1930s, and it was a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And it was 500 pages of anti-Lincoln screed, where he argued that Lincoln was the origins of modern industrial capitalism in the United States and the font of all economic and social oppression. So in the, in the midst of the 1930s, when Carl Sandburg's multi-volume biography of Lincoln was still a bestseller, the book just fell like a brick. And in fact, uh, effectively got masters chased from all public approval. Um, and so he spent the rest of his life really trying to bank on the reputation of Spoon River Anthology. He wrote a new book. Called the Spoon, the New Spoon River, which was about a city overtaking Little Spoon River, effectively Spoon River becoming a suburb, um, and all of none of them were as successful or acclaimed as Spoon River Anthology.
0: Yeah, you, in your book, you reprint the poem, his poem, "Helen of Troy," and if you gave that to a, a stranger and said, "Okay, here's Helen of Troy, and here's any any of the random two hundred and forty-three or six epitaphs," you would never know they were written by the same person.
1: Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And I go through the whole process of him coming up with this epitaphic model. Um, it has to do with a friendship with an editor uh, called William Marion Reedy. Um, and it's a, it's a good story. He thought they were a joke at first. When he wrote them, they made him laugh. And um, he did not think they were worth publishing. And Reedy said to him, this is what you should be doing.
0: So let's talk about the end of the book. At the end, you, you bring up this argument that people no longer see small towns as representative of the country as a whole. So that's, that's gone. As much as you might like It's a Wonderful Life, nobody thinks Bedford Falls, it, you know, that is America anymore, right? Here's from your book. You say, quote, demographic trends, new communities, and an expansion of what was popularly conceived as American have made this idea that small towns were perfect microcosms of America untenable. But you also point out that small towns are still everywhere in popular culture. They're everywhere in films. You talk about Stranger Things. You talk about you know a, a, a number of popular works of art. So, what do you make of the of the resonance of the small town as a, as an as a, um as an artistic building block today?
1: Yeah, um, you know I put most of this in my conclusion. Um, I, I'd intended it to go at the end of the last chapter, but I realized that I, other, I either had to write a second book about this, or I just had to, frankly, um, leave it as a coda uh, in the conclusion. But, you know, I argue and, and try to provide some evidence that, you know, as you said, the um, the small town continues to resonate mythologically uh, in American culture, but it resonates in different ways. Um Whereas it was microcosmic in much of the 20th century, uh, it begins, especially in the early 21st century, to fall into two different categories either exotic or surreal. And so, um, a couple examples of these, for example, would be um, I talk about the movie Fargo. Perhaps your uh, listeners are familiar. Um, with the Coen Brothers movie it uh, it, it takes place in uh, Minnesota and it um, really plays upon the upper Midwestern friendliness the kind of accent of uh, Minnesota and the Dakotas um, and it really treats these rural communities as unusual places with strange mores and funny ways of talking Um Another example that I talk about, which was very long running, would be a Prairie Home Companion um, on NPR for 30 odd years. Uh, really presents an idealized Minnesota town as a kind of exotic place, inspiring of nostalgia, but not really a nostalgia that anyone would recognize as familiar. It's an unusual place. It's a funny place. Um and in fact, NPR was uh, wary of um, producing it in the 1970s because they were afraid it would come across as condescending. Um, the surreal, I think, is increasingly prevalent now. Uh, the example I use in the book, um, an early example would be David Lynch's Twin Peaks, where um The rural nature of the small northwestern town of Twin Peaks uh, allows it to hide this supernatural evil that uh, haunts the town. Um, And an equivalent would be um, more recently the Netflix series Stranger Things, where, uh, what is it, Hawkins, Indiana. Uh, Looks like a regular small town in the 1980s where kids play D&D and ride around on their BMX bikes. But it hides this government research center that within it has a a greater supernatural evil that this exile and populist character, uh, Winona Ryder and the sheriff character, have to help fight with these kids. And so um, I think that represents a transformation um, where... The nostalgia and ambivalence no longer functions in a small town uh, as it did in the 20th century. And they've become both um, American, but also markers of the profound uh, unusualness of rural America for at least those creating um, these works.
0: Certainly, what David Lynch would say is that what's American about about Twin Peaks or about the you know the town of Blue Velvet is the fact that it, it does hide all of these terrible terrible things. He would say that's what that's what
1: America yes. is. Yes, I think that's right, and of course Masters would agree. Uh, there are terrible things hidden in Spoon River, but they're not supernatural. And so um, you know, for me, that's a sort of extension of the ambivalence which turns uh, small towns as a location for a drama into an other rather than a place that is ours. And this piece of art explores the complexity of us. Instead, these places become something else and we're tourists.
0: Jason, it's been great talking with you today. I encourage everyone listening to get a copy of your book, Spoon River America. It's in paperback from the University of Illinois Press. It's a great read. It's a book that sent me back to Spoon River Anthology. So as I was reading your book, I read all of Spoon River Anthology again. Um, I recommend that heartily to your readers out there. Thank you so much, Jason.
1: Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it.